Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older men and women howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about ghost riders. Are we getting cheated? We discuss the feasibility of teleportation and other sci-fi concepts. We enlighten you with another obscure word. We present four inventions that changed the world. And we dig into the concept of ghostwriting. The Old Dog's Conversation is with E.J. Nolan, a former DJ, disco king, sports announcer, voice talent, music entrepreneur, and funny man. Stay with us. So, Paul? Yo. Are you awake? Uh, barely. Are you aware? Uh, never. <laughs> what? You're leading up to something. What you got? All right. I'm wondering what's on your mind. Ah, okay. Well, you know, in our episode today, there was a pod nugget about the process of ghost writing. There are a lot of writers who aren't really writing what they say they're writing. It's a ghost writer. And is there some dishonesty there? What do you think? Well, you'll have to explain more. What do you mean dishonesty? Well, they're pretending that the work is written by somebody, Mm -hmm. maybe a famous author who's dead, like uh, Robert Ludlum, and pricing it accordingly. But in reality, it's not written by Robert Ludlum. It's written by a ghostwriter who was hired to write like Robert Ludlum. Okay. And that would be like buying something that's chocolate-like when you want chocolate. Okay. There are two types, I suppose, of ghostwriters, and you've talked about maybe what I would call the second. The first is that there is a living person, a famous person, wants to tell their story, but they're not a writer, so they hire somebody. And for the most part, don't they usually say, as told to... That used to be the practice. I mm-hmm. think it's uh, that practice is not being used as much these days because they want people to believe that the celebrity actually wrote the book. Now, in the case of a celebrity, mm-hmm. all right, maybe that's harmless. Uh, but we also uncovered some situations where famous writers continue to write after they're dead. Robert Ludlum, Ian Fleming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you are paying for a Robert Ludlum book, but getting a unknown writer's book, and there seems some dishonesty there. It should at least be half price, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> because we, we're blurring the idea of an author. Mm-hmm. Uh, an author should be the person that has put the words on the page. Um, this is nothing new. For example, I'm aware of uh, examples in music where composers have completed the work of uh, past composers. For example, Schubert's Unfinished Symphony has been finished several times. Um, Mozart's Requiem. Yeah, but you never listen to his finished symphony, do you? (laughs) Uh, I have. Oh. Yes. Okay. Uh, So I believe that it is then uh, a bet, all right, that enough people are going to be interested in a certain style and in a certain let's say, familiarity of, of character and plot, that they're going to want to continue to experience that in new episodes. Uh, and they're willing to pay for it. Well, shame on them. <laughs> that's, that's all I got to say. 
is, is this a pointless fight I'm waging here? <laughs> I, I think that you're on a hobby horse of sorts. I am. <laughs> yes. And, and I'm about to be thrown off this hobby horse. <laughs> After watching an episode of Star Trek, you may be wondering why we haven't figured out how to teleport. While it's theoretically possible, it's much more complex than you might think. This pod nugget is from a fascinating book called Frequently Asked Questions About the Universe, published by Riverhead Books. In one of the chapters in the book, the authors tackle the subject with a sense of humor while respecting the cruel limitations of physics. After all, teleportation has been the preferred mode of travel in science fiction for over 100 years. It's time to get practical, guys. They suggest there are two options for making a teleportation machine work. Now, the first option is that the machine could somehow shorten the distance between where you are and where you want to go. The second option is a machine that can transmit you to your destination at the speed of light. Now, the first option relies on some portal like a wormhole or entering into extra-dimensional subspace, whatever that is. Unfortunately, both concepts are theoretical and unproven. So that leaves us with the second option, which is being disassembled at the starting point and reassembled at your destination. One possible way to achieve speed of light transportation is to scan and transport you as a beam of photons. This would be analogous to transporting the idea of you. Now, the real problem may not be technical, but rather philosophical. How much would a copy of you still be you? This is a simplistic explanation that is covered in more detail in the book, plus a bunch of other topics such as time travel, black holes, the origin of the universe, and the feasibility of warp drives. Oh, yeah, I think about those all the time. Me too. Once more, the book is titled Frequently Asked Questions About the Universe. If you have an interest in science with a sense of humor, put this one on your reading list. Well, I see that ABBA is back on tour. Well, maybe not in the flesh, but they are virtually back. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for October 27, 2021. The Swedish group ABBA had a humongous career. Between 1973 and 1981, the group released eight studio albums that generated 20 hits on Billboard's Hot 100 chart and sold tens of millions of albums worldwide. Their best hits album, ABBA Gold, released in 1992, is still on the British charts. With that track record, they could still be performing, probably in some Las Vegas lounge, but in 1982, the group took a break, which lasted 40 years. They have reunited after all that time to record a new album titled Voyage. It features the same familiar vocals and flawless production of previous efforts. Normally, a group goes on tour to promote a new album, but these musicians are all in their 70s and not interested in the rigors of touring. The solution? 3D reproductions of the group members singing the new vocal tracks backed by a live band. One ABBA member explained it this way. What interested us was the idea that we could send them out while we could be home cooking or walking the dog. The new show features a younger version of the group animated by a process called motion capture. For five weeks, the actual musicians wore tight suits covered with sensors to capture the movements of the group singing the songs on the album. The result is the image of ABBA from the 70s singing their new album in virtual reality. You know, Jim, that sure sounds like a Las Vegas show to me. I wouldn't know. 
In an effort to increase your vocabulary and bring more joy into your life. Whoopee! Yeah, we will occasionally offer an addition to your lexicon that's just fun to say. The word in this episode is collywobbles. This is a word from the 1800s that connotes a stomachache or nausea, and Jim will now use it in a sentence. Who, me? You. What? You got the easy part. Really? Um, all right. Um, okay. Aunt Mildred got the collywobbles after listening to this episode. Oh, well done. Thank well you. Done. Thank you. A favorite topic for internet sites is a list of the inventions that changed the world. The Trivia Genius website has trimmed the list of four technological advancements. See if your favorite game changer made the list. The first technology listed is the invention of the printing press in 1439. Now they skipped right over fire the wheel and farming, but the Gutenberg printing press is a worthy choice. It allowed for the mass production of text on an unprecedented scale, although it did put hundreds of monks out of work. Next is the electric dynamo, invented in 1831. Although there was a lot of experimenting with electricity prior to that, some of it unintentional, it was Michael Faraday who coupled a copper coil and a magnet to produce a steady stream of electricity, making it a viable source of energy. The third noteworthy innovation was the discovery of penicillin in 1928 by Alexander Fleming. It was the world's first antibiotic, and it led to the discovery and production of other antibiotics in the years that followed. As a result, the face of modern medicine was changed forever as well as the torso, arms, and legs. (laughs) And finally, the development of the ARPANET by the Department of Defense in 1969. The goal was to use packet switching to establish a network for the rapid exchange of information. The technology developed for ARPANET provided the foundation upon which the Internet was built and the advent of too much information. Well, that's the list. I apologize if you have some favorites that were ignored. I was sorry that soft-serve ice cream and casinos were not included, but the four listed were just as worthy. Now, as an exercise, we encourage listeners to make a different list of the four inventions that led to the decline of civilization. And, you know, it could well be the same four inventions, Jim. Oh, I don't think so. None of mine made the list. If you have a good story to tell but you can't write, you can still become a successful author by employing a ghostwriter. This pod nugget is from the Trivia Genius website dated November 8th, 2021. A ghostwriter is a writer for hire who writes under another person's name. They trade getting credit for their work in exchange for a fee, sometimes a large fee, depending on how good they are. Ghostwriters are commonly employed by celebrities who want to get their stories in front of the public but have trouble forming a coherent sentence. The trick in this case is to capture the voice of the celebrity. Sometimes the phrase, as told to, reveals that a ghostwriter is involved. Another practice is to continue the book sales of a successful author after their death. Robert Ludlum, the creator of the Jason Bourne series, has had several thrillers published under his name since his death in 2001. Ludlum supposedly once said, I don't want my name to disappear. I've spent 30 years writing books and building an audience. Successful young adult and science fiction series are often ghost-written because of the frequency of publishing these books. 
Franklin W. Dixon, the author of the Hardy Boys books, and Carolyn Keene, the author of the Nancy Drew series, were really the pseudonyms for several ghost writers. It's very difficult to become an established author, so ghostwriting can provide a substantial income for a skilled writer who is willing to remain anonymous. Even if they don't receive credit, they have created works that readers love, and the publishing world is grateful for the service they provide. E.J. Nolan is one of those guys who defies even the concept of the Renaissance man. There seems to be no beginning and certainly no end in sight to his career. From radio and disco to his current passion for training musicians, E.J. is a guy whom you'll always find in motion. I understand you grew up in the Detroit area. That's right. True? Tell us a little bit about your formative years. Okay. Uh, well, uh, my dad was uh, a fireman, and his dad was a fireman. So at one point, my dad asked me, have you thought about what you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, well, you know, at that time, it was the 60s. I thought I might be a fireman. Everybody wanted to be a fireman back then. And my dad says, look, this is Detroit. You don't want to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and 10 minutes later, you have icicles hanging off your nose, and then you've got to go into some shack, and you don't know whether the floor is going to fall out from under you or the roof is going to cave in on top of you or both. And I said, you know, when you put it that way, it doesn't sound that appealing. So what did you do instead? So then I went to University of Detroit. I got a, a degree in radio and television. And uh, it was around the time that disco came around the first time. And I actually studied with a guy named Paul Christie. He had come up with this idea about uh, disco music and about how, okay, if you have a bar, you don't need to attract guys. All you need to do is attract women. So play music that appeals to women. And that women listen to lyrics more than guys do. The guys are just kind of bobbing their head. Doo, 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 doo. But the women, you know, are listening to the words. So if you play music to attract women, that'll attract the guys. And so I actually came up with a, a name for that concept, which was discovation, basically. <laughs> Motivating people with disco music. So the kind of the quintessential song is, at the disco, that's where the happy people go. So I wound up doing real well and getting paid in cash. I bought my first car a year out of college for cash, a van, and put furry stuff on the ceiling and mirrors and a bed Swag in the lamp. van. And yet, and yet, you left all of that behind and somehow left Michigan and got to Houston. How'd that happen? At that time, there was an article on the front page of Time magazine about Texas, the land of opportunity. And I think it had a picture of a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader on the front. That had it nothing to do with it. It was the gold buckle on the sunbelt. That yeah. was the phrase. There, uh, there we go. And so we got here, and uh, within a week, I had found two jobs as a disco DJ, including at Mums downtown, 2016 Maine, a condo downtown. Yeah. And my wife got a job at this place, Tingles, which was at Dunphy's Royal Coach Hotel. Actually, I got a job at Tingles also. I went in there. I had been one of the top disco DJs in Michigan, and they had a, a waitress playing the record. So I'm like, hey, I got a whole plan, discovation, you know. Uh, they just invested thousands in uh, redecorating the place. So I wound up working there, and we got sucked in. <laughs> that's that's the whole interview. Is I that think. all you've got <laughs> to say about that? Getting to Houston, but you didn't stop there, did you? Somehow you got into sound mixing. Tell us about that. 
I've been doing disco stuff. I'm going to see if I can use my TV degree. And so I looked through the phone book. And at that time, there was just two inches of video production companies. And one of them was at 10 Greenway Plaza at the Summit. That was MCI Productions. And I went and talked to them. And they were the TV production house here in town that was the only, the only one that wasn't at a TV station. And uh, at that time... Uh, their audio guy was moving over to be a director and they're like, well, so we kind of need an audio guy. And I'd worked in radio, but they said, you know, you've also done acting and things like this, but uh, they're like, we're not sure if we want you to work here because you're more of an in front of the camera guy than a behind the camera guy. And I somehow convinced them I could be behind the camera. And I wound up mixing the sound for the Houston Rockets. Uh, This was in 78 and for the Houston Astros. All right, I got to ask you something. You were for a period of time the voice of the Houston Rockets. That's right. How did that happen? The team was just sold from uh, the car dealer that owned it before the Rockets to Les Alexander. And a new broom sweeps clean is a, a phrase that is used in radio quite a bit. You know, a new guy comes in, they get rid of everybody. And I knew the guy who had been the PA announcer. And I said, well, you know, what do you, uh, what's going on there? I don't want to take the job if you want to uh, keep it. Uh, he's like, ah, you know, they want, uh, they want to cut their game day expenses. So I'm like, well, how much were you making? He said, well, 55 bucks a game. I'm like, well, that's not much. I was making, you know, four times that mixing the sound for the game. And, and that place was not uh, known for overpaying. But uh, I talked to a guy named Brad. He said, why don't you come in Monday? We'll see what you sound like. So I got there and didn't realize that they had publicized it in on the sports pages. Rockets looking for new announcers. So I got there and there were 36 people hmm. trying out for the position. At any rate, they had us go through one round of stuff. And uh, basically, the auditors were sitting about 10 rows up on the far side of the this big 16,000-seat stadium. And then they had us down at the table on the floor. And they would kind of give you things to uh, say. And uh, I was saying, having improvisational background helps in a lot of areas of life because life is improvisation after all. Uh, and they're like, okay, uh, two minutes left in the game. The Rockets are up by four. Rockets are about to inbound the ball. And you want to get the crowd into it. So I'm like, all right, Rockets fans, your Rockets are in the home stretch. They're about to go. Let's let them know you're with them. Rockets ball. And it echoed throughout this huge, (laughs) empty stadium. Uh, And uh, so I got down to the final nine, and then they brought me in, and they said, well, uh, you know, if if you want the job, we know you have an agent. Do we have to go through the agent? And I'm like, well, this is not broadcast, so not really. They're like, good, good. Uh, It'll pay $50 a game. And I laughed. Les bought the team for $85 million. He wants to get it back five bucks a game from me. And I thought, well— what the hell, I'll, I'll take the job, even though it was a huge cut in pay from doing the sound mixing for the television. I'd like to know how you went from being an announcer for the Rockets to a career in voiceovers. Well, uh, I had I had been in radio up in Michigan. I worked uh, at uh, WHMI in Howell, and I was kind of the news director there, as well as a, a jock, as we call it in the business. Uh, I had worked at the TV station at University of Detroit, worked at WEXL 
in uh, Royal Oak. Well, you were a voice guy on radio, which means you were basically an announcer. Yeah. But you're an actor. And I think I know you much more as an actor yeah. than as an announcer. So when did you start getting the voice acting jobs? I've always been into uh, uh, radio drama and theater of the mind. Uh, and uh, as you may be familiar, I, I may not do this justice, but Stan Freeberg, mm. yeah, I had a great thing that he did for years, which was used by the Radio Advertising Bureau, where uh, Jesse White, I think it is, says, Radio? Why should I advertise on radio? Well, there's a lot of things you can do on radio that you can't really do on TV. For this demonstration, we're going to drain Lake Erie have some bulldozers, fill it with whipped cream, and then the Royal Canadian Air Force is about to fly over and drop a maraschino cherry yeah. on top. <laughs> okay, let's drain the lake. And you <laughs> cue the whipped cream. <laughs> cue the Air Force. <laughs> drop the cherry. <laughs> now let's see you do that on TV. I guess, I don't know if it was your next phase, but... Uh, you started getting interested in music again. Yeah. And that led to a mini empire. You want to <laughs> tell us about that? There's another guy that both of you may know named Mike Halsey, uh, uh, a TV producer here in town. He does all kinds of national spots, etc. But he's a friend of mine. He's like, hey, why don't you come over and play in this uh, garage band we got? So I was playing with this garage band that sometimes was called uh, Free Beer. And uh, so that's what you put on the marquee outside, free beer to get people to come in. Uh, and uh, one of the guys in the band uh, said, hey, have you heard about this thing called uh, School of Rock? He said, I think I was reading in Guitar Aficionado magazine or Guitar Collector magazine uh, that you can get a franchise of a thing called School of Rock. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, maybe I'd look into that. And uh, the cost to get into it was not all that much. This weekend, we did 17 hours of concerts. No, it was probably more than that. Yeah, because we did 16 hours in the Clear Lake area and another eight hours up in the Champion Forest area. And uh, I tell people that the, the, the playing the music and playing in a band, people don't often think of it this way. It's like, oh, I'm going to get my kid in some kind of team sport, socialization. But playing in a band is much more of a team sport it's teamwork. Everybody has to be playing their part. And what we do at School of Rock that's different from most music schools is we don't teach music to do concerts. We do concerts to teach music. So we can tell the kids, okay, you're going to be playing at the House of Blues next week. Don't suck. <laughs> and and basically they tell each other that so it's, it becomes positive peer pressure and we've had our kids play at all the uh, the best venues in town and uh, I know it sounds like a commercial but we actually had 25 of our kids sing on stage with Foreigner in front of 17,000 people at Cynthia Woods Mitchell Pavilion what does that do for their internal resume I think everybody's got an internal resume here's what I can do here's what I have done and uh, once you've done that it's like hey, there's a lot I can do. Have you and your wife ever talked about, you know, at some point I'd like to sever all the responsibilities and do fill in the blank? Well, 
Good. I, I don't know if it's uh, my Catholic upbringing, my, my feeling of responsibility, etc. I feel like I like cruising too much. Uh, <laughs> we, we've been on a few cruises, and to me, as far as what's, what's next for EJ, it could be as simple as let the managers manage the, the businesses, and I'll take the 5,000-foot view and say, hey, you know, we really ought to be promoting summer camps, even though it's the middle of winter. We ought to be thinking about doing that. Or or here's some songs that I think we ought to be doing in the New Wave show. So as far as uh, what my wife and I want to do in the future, uh, there's a lot of places we haven't been. And, and, and her knees are not real good. Mine, you know, who knows? Uh, but uh, if we're going to go to Machu Picchu or something like that, I want to go places while we can still walk around. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We could always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned, keep howling at the moon, and have yourselves a merry little holiday of your choice.